Let me have you look uh, with me at Romans chapter 2. We've uh, come to this second chapter in Paul's letter. The, the text uh, that is there before you is Romans 2, verses 1 through 27. I'm not going to read the whole thing, um, but I do want to call your attention to a few verses in this second chapter because um, it's these few verses that we're going to, uh, we're going to focus on. So just read with me. I'm going to start at verse 4, and then I'm going to jump down to verses 12 to 15, and then I'm going to read the last few verses. So this is God's word, God speaking through Paul to these Roman Christians. Verse 4 of chapter 2, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And then verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And then down at verse 25, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. And then verse 29, but a Jew is one inwardly, a circumcision, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you uh, for this, your word again. Um, we, we, we believe, and, and if we struggle to believe it, we at least want to believe that the reason that you give your word is, is for our good. So um, we accept it, and we ask you now that you'd, that you'd use it, that through your word we'd be shaped, we'd be enlightened, we'd be molded. God, may we better, better see, better understand how the beauty of the gospel, the freedom in the gospel, uh, because the things we've read this morning come from you and are true. So, Lord, help us by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We've uh, we moved from chapter 1 of Romans into chapter 2, and um, I mentioned last week I made reference to the Nobel Peace Prize, and, and you know, in doing that, I, I guess I was thinking two things. I was thinking, um, you know, number one, we're pretty impotent when it comes to effecting peace in this world, accomplishing peace in this world by human institutions and human agency and that sort of thing. But then there's the other thing, and that is that there's just sort of in us, in our hearts, there's this longing for peace. I mean, who doesn't want peace? I mean, who wants for the nations to be feuding, you know, from the sort of the global level? I mean, who wants to see Sunni and Shia assaulting each other? Who wants to see Irish Catholics and Protestants? I certainly don't want to see Irish Catholics and Protestants assaulting each other. I've got a vested interest in that, you know. I, I don't want to see that. I'm Irish, by the way, in case you missed that. I mean, who wants to see people at odds with one another on this global scale? It just, you know, it threatens everybody. Everybody has an impulse in the direction of peace, an instinct for peace, a longing for peace, not just at the global level, but in our homes, right? In our marriages, with our kids, relationships in the church. We, we have an impulse, a longing, an instinct for peace. Why is that? It's because we're made in the image of God. That's why we were made for peace. We were made for peace by the God who is peace. We were made for shalom by the God who is shalom. And we can't get it out of our systems. 
right? Even when we want to try to impose it forcibly by some external means, there's something beneath all of that, and it's this longing for peace. And, and what I suggested to you last week is that the, the, the irony, the paradox, the strange thing, the bizarre thing, um, is that peace, peace comes not by me saying we'll have peace if you would just be like me, then we'd have peace. But peace, paradoxically, ironically, strikingly, comes when I respond the way G.K. Chesterton did to an article in the Times of London, the heading of which asked the question, what is wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton wrote this massive, elaborate response of one sentence to the editor. You ask the question, what is wrong with the world? I am. I am what is wrong with the world. That's, I mean, that's where the path to peace begins. It, It starts not with you. It starts with me, whether at the global scale or at the relational scale in our homes. And Paul, you know, I mean, he's pressing this. He's pressing the fact that everybody has the same need. Um, he's writing to these Christians in, in Rome. Um, but what you need to know, if you don't know, is that this church in Rome is, is a mixed church. It's made up of both Jews and Gentiles. He keeps saying, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. He's, he's writing to this mixed congregation. And what I've suggested to you is that he's, through this first section of this letter, what he's trying to press home is that we all have the same need, whether we're Jew or Gentile. Everybody's got the same problem. And it's, as I said, it's that, that word, it's the four-letter word that's actually a three-letter word that, that nobody really wants to talk about, but that everybody's got to talk about. If you're going to come to terms with things, then that's the problem of sin. It's universal and it's pervasive. You remember the, the, the little camp song, Deep and Wide, Deep and Wide, right? Well, sin goes deep and wide. It goes deep into the deepest recesses of who I am, and it goes wide. It covers everybody. It touches everybody. And Paul is seeking to press this home to these folks who are reading this letter. Now, again, here's what, what, what and I just want to elaborate this a little bit because I want you to know what was in Paul's mind as he's writing this. Um, this congregation is made up, this congregation in Rome is made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And I frankly think that understanding that is a key to understanding what is going on in this letter because he's constantly bouncing back and forth between the two. And here in chapter 2, he's turned his attention to the Jews, the Jews who are in the midst of the congregation some of whom, maybe many of whom, certainly have embraced Christ. They've embraced Jesus as the Messiah. Um, but others, uh, other of whom may not have embraced Jesus as the Messiah, but their friends brought him, right? Some Jewish person who has embraced Jesus as the Messiah said to his, you know, his business partner or neighbor or something like that, I want you to come with me on Thursday night to a study. We're reading the scriptures. We're listening to the scriptures. We're reading Isaiah 52 and 53. We're reading Psalm 22. We're reading the story of the Passover, whatever it is. They're gathering together. They're looking at the scriptures. And and as they're studying the scriptures, they're being confronted with Jesus. Now, you know, the question is, how how did the gospel get there? Well, this is fascinating. 
It didn't get there through Peter. It didn't get there through Paul. It didn't get there through some other apostle. It got there. The gospel got from Jerusalem. Remember where it started. Actually, it started way before that. It started in the Garden of Eden, but we won't go back that far. We'll just go back to Jerusalem. It started in Jerusalem. How does it get from Jerusalem to Rome? It got from Jerusalem to Rome through lay people. It got there through lay people. It was lay people who took the gospel from Jerusalem to Rome. What kind of lay person? A Jewish lay person. A Jewish lay person who was in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover and who stuck around until Pentecost, right? I mean, if you're going to go to Italy and visit Venice, why not stay a little longer and visit Florence? If you're going to go for Passover, why not stay the additional seven weeks and stick around for Pentecost? And that's what these people did. They went for the Passover. Something really wild, weird, bizarre happened on that particular Passover. Jesus of Nazareth was crucified, impaled on a cross. Thousands of people saw it impaled on a cross, put in a grave, and on the third day after his burial, he was alive again. And then seven weeks and one day after that, Pentecost came, the second of the celebrations in Israel, Passover being the first. Passover celebrates deliverance. Pentecost celebrates first fruits. What happened on the day of Pentecost? The Spirit fell upon the church blessing the church, giving the church a taste of what is to come. That's what the Holy Spirit is. That's who the Holy Spirit is. He's a down payment. He's a promise of your future inheritance. And the Holy Spirit fell, and more strange and bizarre things started to happen. People who had come from all over the Roman Empire, including people from Rome, that's Acts 2, verse 10, people from all over the Roman Empire began hearing the gospel preached in their native tongue. And when Peter stood up to explain what was going on and preached his first sermon, in fact, the first sermon, if you will, people said, what what must I do to be saved? What must I do? What do I have to do? See, people were convicted. They heard the gospel. They heard Peter unpack a little bit about what was promised and what came to fulfillment in Jesus. Life, death, resurrection of Jesus, then ascension, and then the outpouring of the Spirit. Boom, 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 boom. All these things in rapid-fire succession. And people are connecting the dots, and they're seeing the fulfillment. It's happened. Right? We sing, come thou long expected Jesus. It's happened. He's come. That's what Paul says in the first few verses of Romans 1. The long-awaited promised son of David, the promised king who inaugurates his kingdom, who when he brings his kingdom inaugurates a reign of peace and seeks to extend that reign of peace farther and farther and deeper and deeper into your heart and my heart and out into the world so that people can sniff the difference, can smell the difference. That's what Paul says to the Corinthians. We we are an aroma, a sweet fragrance. We who embrace the gospel, we're an aroma of life. You know, you could get kind of silly with this and you could sort of ask, what, what perfume do you wear as a Christian? 
You wear the perfume of life. You wear the aroma of life. Why? Because the Spirit has been given, poured out upon you, first fruits of what is to come. What is to come? Life, shalom, peace in all of its fullness. And there were people there in Jerusalem who heard it, who saw it, who said, what do we have to do to be saved? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And they did, and they were. They repented, they were baptized, and they went back to Rome, different people. Different people. That's what the gospel does. It makes us different. I've shared this cartoon from Christianity Today from 30 years ago, right? This pastor who's, you know, he's in a suit and he's, it's all rumpled up and he's leaning against the pulpit and he says, I've been preaching to you about the life-transforming power of the gospel for the last five weeks. Why do you look like the same old bunch? <laughs> you know, I'm, I mean, we're not the same old bunch. We've been changed. Even though we look like it, the gospel has this transforming, changing power. There is new life in you because of Christ, because of his grace, because of the Spirit being poured out upon you. And so Paul is writing to this congregation of people who initially were a congregation of of Jews. And they brought the gospel back from Jerusalem. It was finally time for them to go home. They were visitors in Jerusalem. Visitors eventually leave and go home, which is why I don't like to use the word visitor for people who are new to this congregation. I don't want you to go home. I want you to stay. Visitors go home and they went home. And so Paul is writing to them, instructing them, teaching them. But over the course of the 20 to 25 years between the return of those Jews who returned with the gospel, who returned with lives that were changed, over the course of the intervening 25 years, there are Gentiles who have come into the church. And one of the perennial problems, in, in, it's a perennial problem, and it was a significant problem for Paul and for Peter and for the church in those early days is how do these Jews and Gentiles get along with each other? How do they relate to each other? How do they relate to each other? And what Paul is doing in this letter, and particularly in this second chapter, is seeking very patiently but very directly in a very laser-like way that Jews and Gentiles relate to each other on the same basis. Jews and Gentiles relate to each other on the same basis. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of blow through this, but I, I really want to plead with you that, you that you hear this and that we remind ourselves of these things we can very easily become the Jews, if you will, of the 21st century. We, we can very easily become what the Jews of the first century were, which is this, grounding their acceptance with God, not on the finished work of Christ, not on the obedience of Jesus, not on the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension, the rule and reign of Jesus, but grounding their acceptance with God on false righteousnesses, replacement righteousnesses. And here's what happens. 
if you ground your acceptance with God on the basis of anything other than the finished work of Christ, you will ground your acceptance of other people on the same basis. You get that? If you ground your acceptance with God on the basis of anything other than the finished work of Christ, you will be strongly inclined to accept other people on the same basis. And that's what these Jews were doing. And that's why Paul had to turn the laser light of the gospel upon them to expose for them what they were doing. And there are basically three righteousnesses that they were employing. Three false righteousnesses. And I've referred to them in the text. The first I'll call the righteousness of ethnicity. The righteousness of ethnicity. We are accepted by God because we are Jewish. We are accepted by God because we are Jewish. That's what was in their heads. John the Baptist had to deal with it in Luke chapter 3. The Pharisees came out to him, wanted to hear him preach. He said, don't, don't tell me about being sons of Abraham. In other words, don't appeal to your ethnicity. God is able from these stones to raise up sons to himself. Jesus had to deal with it. He dealt with it in John chapter 8. He's speaking to people. They're responding. And John 8 says, to those who responded to Jesus, to those who believed in Jesus, he said this, if you abide in my teaching, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. And the Jews who were there responded and said, what are you telling us about freedom for? We are Abraham's children. Ethnicity. We are free because we are Abraham's children. We are free because of ethnicity. And Paul is directing his gospel laser at these folks, exposing the same thing. Verse 4, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Now, what does Paul have in mind there? Well, let me give you some passages. I'm not going to read them. I'll just give them to you, but I'll encourage you to read them. Joshua 24, verses 1 through 5, is a passage where Joshua, having assumed the mantle of leadership from Moses some significant period of time prior, Joshua is now leaving the scene. And God, through Joshua, reminds the people that Abraham, their father, worshipped and served other gods. Now, why would he remind them of that? Well, he wants to remind them of the fact that Abram was a pagan. That according to the flesh, he was a, he was a non-believer. But it was God who in grace and mercy plucked Abram out of the darkness of pagan worship in Mesopotamia, called him, led him, made promises to him out of all of the people populating the planet. Out of all of the people on the planet, God showed mercy and kindness to Abram. There was this, there was this show when I was a kid growing up called The Millionaire. Maybe some of you remember The Millionaire. It was a great story. It was a story of a millionaire who was a multimillionaire. 
And what he would do is commission his messenger to go to someone whom he had selected who would then be given a gift, a free gift of a million dollars. Now, in 1958, that was a lot of money. It's still a lot of money, I think, today, but it was a lot more money in 1958, 59, 60. Now, let me ask you, if you're living in poverty, if you're destitute, if you have nothing, and someone knocks on your door and says, I have some really good news for you. Someone has commissioned me to give you a million dollars. All you have to do is receive it. What do you do? I'll bet you do what they did in the show. They slammed the door in the guy's face because they thought it was some kind of hoax. How come? Because it's too good to be true. That somebody simply out of the generosity of his heart would give to someone destitute and in need a million dollars. Now, if somebody does that for you, what does it do to you? I mean, I think it would humble you. It would humble you. And every time you thought about that million dollars, you'd be reminded of how great your need was, how destitute you were, and somebody showed you mercy and kindness simply as an expression of his character. That's what God did for Israel. That's what God did for Abram. Picked Abram, called Abram, summoned Abram out of darkness, brought him into a promised land, made promises to him. Why? Because Abram was smart, because Abram was wise, because Abram was good? No, because God is merciful. And it doesn't make you proud. It makes you humble. But you see, Paul is addressing pride in the Jews. They had become proud. They viewed themselves as the chosen people. They were right to view themselves as the chosen people but they thought that God loved them because they were Jewish rather than understanding they were Jewish because God loved them. There's a difference, right? Exodus 7 and 8. Look at Exodus 7 and 8 sometime this week. It's God speaking through Moses. It's God doing the same thing. It's Moses reminding the people that God loved them, not because they were more numerous, not because they were smart, not because they were powerful. In fact, they were the least of all of the nations and God showed them mercy. God loved them. Why? Simply to show his love, not because of their desert, of their worthiness. And Paul is saying, you've forgotten it. You've forgotten it. You're grounding your acceptance with God on, on ethnicity rather than upon the mercy and kindness of God. How can peace come to the world? How can there ever be peace among the nations? How can reconciliation come to Ireland? How could reconciliation come to Palestine? How could reconciliation come between Hutus and Tutsis in Rwanda? How is it possible for an estranged husband and an estranged wife to be at peace with one another. Only one way. There's only one way. 
when I begin to acknowledge, when I begin to acknowledge that I am accepted, not on the basis of anything that I am, not on the basis of ethnicity, not on the basis of anything like that, but solely because of the grace and mercy of God, accepted by him first, so that then acceptance, reconciliation can exist between people. It can't be ethnicity. Here's the second thing. Verses 13 and 17. It is the righteousness of the moral code. All who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. It is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but it is the doers of the law who will be righteous. What's Paul thinking about? Well, he's thinking about the law. He's just exposed the Gentile culture, right? In chapter 1, he's just shown the bankruptcy of it. He's just exposed the tragedy of it, the devastation of it. And the Jews are not Gentiles. The Jews have the law. They have the Ten Commandments. They have the moral code. And they find their security simply in having the moral code, in having the law. Now look, this is tough. This this gets pretty close to where each of us lives. We have moral codes, don't we? We construct them. We put them in place. We've got lists of do's and we've got lists of don'ts. And very, very subtly, those lists of do's and don'ts can become the basis upon which I find my acceptance with God. I mean, just think about it. It is an insidious, cancerous, encroaching, life-destroying danger. Think about it. I don't smoke. I don't chew. I don't go with girls who do. Right? I don't drink. I don't dance. I don't go to bad movies. I dress in a particular way. I walk in a particular way. I do particular things. I keep these commandments. But look at what Paul does. He, He drills beneath the surface. He drills beneath the surface of the externals and reminds these folks that they don't keep their own code. And so they have no basis upon which to judge others, to disconnect themselves from others who don't have the same moral code that they do. In fact, he said he exposes the the fraudulency, the, the falseness, the foolishness of this notion by pointing out to them that Gentiles, in fact, do right things and they don't even have the code that you have. They still do right things. That's a part of his response. You're not differentiated from Gentiles because you do right things and Gentiles don't do right things. They do right things too. But even more than that, you've got to think about your own code. Think about it. Think about it really and truly and honestly. And you come to the conclusion, just like every honest person has to come to the conclusion, that I don't keep my own code. I don't live up to my own standard. I don't conform to my own expectations, much less the perfect, exalted, excellent, righteous, holy, moral code of God. Paul refers in this passage to stealing, 
and to adultery and to idolatry. What's he doing in those verses, beginning at verse 20 and following? He's taking them back to the Ten Commandments. He's taking them back to the moral code. And in taking them back to the moral code, he's reminding them that true obedience isn't just an external thing because the true moral code has to do with what I worship. And the thing that I worship, I've said this to you a thousand times, the thing that I worship is the thing that I am trusting functionally for my salvation. I'm trusting it to keep me safe. I'm trusting it to keep me secure. I'm trusting it to save me. It's a Messiah, the thing that I trust. Right? How many of us over the course of the last couple of years have have felt the tectonic plates shifting under our feet? We've lost jobs. Our assets have plummeted. Government is printing money, borrowing money, spending money like nobody's business. It's not new with this administration. And everybody feels like the old Carol King song, I feel the earth move under my feet. Everything is shaking, rocking and rolling. And I'm nervous, aren't you? Right? Now look, it's one thing to feel a little nervous. It's another thing to be afraid. It's another thing to have to come to terms with the fact that I'm actually trusting a healthy, powerful, income-generating economy. I'm actually trusting that more than I am God. That's an unnerving thing to have to come to terms with, but it's a kind of idolatry, isn't it? I'm looking to the economy to keep keep me safe. It's an idolatry, subtle things. And Paul is simply exposing to these Jews, the fact that they don't even keep their own moral code. How can they possibly, on the basis of a moral code, accept or reject other people? You see what he's doing? He's trying to drive us always, always, always back to the cross, back to the sufficiency of Jesus, who has kept the moral code perfectly for us so that I might be fully accepted. And it's on that basis, not the basis of my conformity to the code, but on the basis of Jesus' conformity to the code that I am accepted with the Father, and that becomes the basis upon which I accept others. So there's the righteousness of ethnicity, there's the righteousness of the moral code, and then there's the righteousness of religious practice, and that's in verse 25 and following. Circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. What's, What's he saying there? He's simply saying... I'm secure and safe because, and I'll use New Testament language, I'll use this side of the cross imagery, I'm safe and secure because I've been baptized. I'm safe and secure because I've been baptized. I'm safe and secure because of a religious practice, a religious performance. That's that's what they thought. They thought that this this circumcision was a kind of a badge of honor. It was a badge of security. And Paul is saying, no, circumcision points to something very deep, very significant, very profound. That's the last verse. It points to something that is done in the heart by the Spirit. It's not an external thing. And so the thing I must always be asking myself, I who have been circumcised, I must ask myself, has what is inside of me been cut away and removed? 
And has, been, has it been cut away and removed by a power and a force outside of me who operates on me in order to cleanse me and then reconcile me to himself on the basis of that cleansing? I who have been baptized, I need to be asking myself, am I trusting the fact that I've been baptized? Because I've been baptized, I have nothing to worry about. My parents had it done to me when I was a baby. Paul would say, no, no, it isn't baptism that saves you. It isn't the waters of baptism that cleanse you. But rather, it is Jesus who was plunged into the waters of judgment, whose blood was shed. It is Jesus who was cut off and removed and swallowed up by those waters of judgment and who emerged from those waters, who emerged from that death alive and whole as a ruling and reigning king. It is Jesus who cleanses you. So the question is, not have I been baptized, but the question as always is, do I have Jesus? Do I have Jesus? So this is where Paul is taking us in this chapter. He's taking us away from confidence in ethnicity and those kinds of things. He's taking us away from confidence in a moral code. He's taking us away from confidence in religious practices. They aren't enough. I need something outside of me. I need somebody to do something for me that you can't do and that I can't do for myself. And that is what God has done. That is what God provides. Why has Christ come? Christ has come to put things right. Christ has come to put things right. That's why he comes. And the first thing that he begins to put right, and this is the good news, the first thing that he begins to put right is me. He begins to put me right. He puts me right first with God And he does it on the basis of his perfect life and his death as a substitute and then his resurrection over death in the grave. He does it as I receive that. It's the million-dollar check, right? Jesus is the one commissioned. He's got the riches. He's got the resources. He possesses everything. He stands before you and me, and he says, here's the million dollars. Will you receive it? Will you receive it? Take it. Receive it. Jettison your ethnicity. Jettison your moral codes. Jettison your religious practices. It is Jesus. It is Jesus who puts things right between God and me. And then it is Jesus who puts things right between you and me. And that's the only way things are ever going to be right between you and me is when you and I together stand on the flat surface at the foot of the cross and acknowledge that we are both sinners and we both need a Savior. A Hutu can do that with a Tutsi. An Irish Catholic can do that with an Irish Protestant. A Sunni can do that with a Shia. Who come to terms with the bankruptcy of ethnicity, moral codes, and religious practices and embrace Jesus and Jesus alone. I've got to tell you a great 
little story. It's actually an illustration. It's not true, but it comes from the movie Hill Street Blues, or the, the, the TV show Hill Street Blues. One episode, one of the detectives is struggling with alcoholism. His marriage is about to fall apart. His kids have rejected him. He's about to lose his job. He's struggling with alcoholism, and he's getting encouragement from people that he go to an AA meeting, and he gets some help. And he wrestles with this through the whole episode. But then at the end of the episode, you see this basement room with this nasty tile floor and metal folding chairs, if you've ever been to an AA meeting. Smoke filling the room. And at the back door, this detective appears. And very slowly, tremulously, he walks through the back door. He sneaks into the first row of chairs and sits down on one of those metal folding chairs, takes a deep breath, leans forward on his knees, puts his elbows on his knees, and just happens to glance to the left. And who should lean forward and look at him and smile? But Captain Ferrillo the one who has his job, his life, his future in his hands, who could have fired him and didn't. And so the captain and the detective, who have the same need, come to the place where they can begin to find help. That's a metaphor, you understand? That's what this place is. That's a place where people in need come together and where all differences of ethnicity, moral conformity, and religious practice fade away. And at the cross, we find the help that we need. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, more and more and more, may this cross grow larger and larger for us. Jesus, keep us near the cross. Don't let these things grow up in our hearts. Mortify these things. Mortify any tendency to rest in ethnicity or socioeconomic standing or anything else. Mortify any tendency in my heart, in our hearts, to trust in performance, moral codes, or anything like that mortify in our hearts, put to death in our hearts any reliance on religious practices and help us to cling solely and entirely from start to finish to your perfect finished work accomplished in our behalf so that our hearts might be knit together by this unifying grace. Lord, be with us. Help us to this end, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We have you stand and we'll sing together number 580.